Hey everyone, welcome back to Tierna Apologetics. I'm super pumped to join us today to have Dr. Taylor Sear. Uh, he's a professor, an assistant professor of philosophy at Stanford University down in Alabama. Um, today we're talking about all things free will and compatibilism and all that stuff. So Taylor, what's up, man? How you doing? Hey, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm super pumped to talk about like freedom, the questions like that are super that are super fundamental to think about like the nature of who we are. Like, are we free? Are we determined? Um, yeah. You know, things like this. So do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are, what you do, and what kind of interest in topics like this, Taylor? Sure. Yeah. So uh, like you said, I'm an assistant professor of philosophy at Samford University, which is in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, from Florida originally, I uh, went to Florida State uh, for my undergrad and stuck around for a master's. Got to study under some great um, free will philosophers there. And then I did my PhD out in Southern California at the University of California, Riverside, where I studied under uh, John Martin Fisher, who's also another big free will philosopher. Um, yeah, and I've been, let's see, I wrote a dissertation on um, free will and moral responsibility, kind of a bunch of independent chapters that I've, I've published as articles defending, I've taken as a whole kind of defending one view on um, free will, which is a compatibilist sort of view. And I've stuck with it. I've recently, with my friend uh, Matt Flummer, who also studied at Florida State, uh, started a podcast and a YouTube channel um, dedicated to free will. It's called The Free Will Show. And we interview other philosophers and sometimes non-philosophers, some scientists, uh, about various topics on free will. So if people are looking to get a sort of more thorough introduction to the topic, there's a whole series of interviews you could listen to over at the, at the Free Will Show. Mm, that's super cool. Well, uh, thanks for that, Taylor. Yeah. Um, so what I'd love to talk about is just like like laying the different views when we're looking at the free will debate. Um, so you want to talk about like you frame it as like we have libertarian free will, compatibilism, and like a no free will position. It's like what are these three like overarching views in this debate that we're looking at today? Yeah, those are the three main positions. And they're what they disagree about is what free will is and whether we have it. So um, one way of making sure that we're not just sort of talking past each other and talking about different things when we say we have free will or we don't have free will or it's compatible with determinism or it's not is make sure we're all using the, the term free will in the same way, which hasn't mm -hmm. always been the case in the history of philosophy and in, even in theology. Um, so most people nowadays use the term free will just to refer to whatever kind of control you'd have to have over your behavior to be morally responsible for it. And where I, by moral, morally responsible for that behavior, I mean like you deserve praise or blame in virtue of having sort of knowingly done that thing. Mm. So to say that we have free will is to say we have the kind of control required for that. For I think of it as moral accountability for being um, to praise or to blame for at least some of the stuff that we do. Um, and then the, one of the main disagreements in the free will debate is whether we could be morally responsible for what we do if the universe is causally deterministic. So for determinism to be true is for the laws of nature to be such that given the way things were in the distant past, maybe billions of years ago, um, given the laws, there's only one possible future. There's only one way things could unfold from that earlier state of the universe. So the if the universe is deterministic, the uh, laws of nature work like a function where you input a state of the universe whole, you know, a snapshot of like the whole universe down to the location of every, you know, subatomic particle. Um, and as an output, you get the next state of the universe and you can keep applying that function. And there's just one output for any given time that's possible given the earlier state and given the laws. Um, for the universe to be indeterministic is just for there to be some case where there's an event that's not determined by the prior state of the universe and the laws. Um, okay, and then maybe we'll talk about this more in just a minute, but when people hear about determinism, they often immediately think, well, that would take away free will. <laughs> there's no way we could have free will if determinism is true. Um, sometimes people even describe the free will debate as a debate that's uh, like free will versus determinism, where you've got to choose one mm -hmm. of those. Um, but actually, the one of the sort of main questions in the free will debate is, are they compatible? Are free will and determinism, determinism compatible? And uh, libertarians say no, and they think we have free will anyway. So that's sort of the two parts of the libertarian position. Um, free will and determinism are incompatible with each other, and yet we have free will, which implies the third thesis that the world is not deterministic. 
Um, compatibilists, the second main position, and this is uh, the group of which I'm a member, uh, compatibilists say, no, free will and determinism are compatible with each other. And then the skeptic, the skeptic says we don't have free will, so they disagree with the libertarian and with the compatibilist. Um, they might think the reason we don't have free will is because determinism is true and it rules out free will. Um, that was a more common position um, uh, kind of more than decades ago, not in the recent literature, partly because there's been um, uh, developments in quantum physics that make it seem like, well, maybe the universe isn't deterministic. And if that's the case, then you can't sort of be a skeptic about free will on the basis of science or something like that. So a mm -hmm. lot of a lot of skeptics nowadays just think whether the world's deterministic or indeterministic, there's no free will. And maybe we'll get to some reasons why they think um, both libertarianism is unsatisfactory and compatibilism is unsatisfactory. But those are the the three main positions. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Taylor. So you're defining free will then like as the ability to like um, the co control that we have that's required for moral responsibility. Mm -hmm. Do I have you right? Mm -hmm. That's right. Do you wonder, like sometimes I wonder, do you think this goes against maybe like popular intuitions? Like me, like six-year-old Zach, um, he never really thought a lot about philosophy would think that like free will is something like the ability that like I could have like done otherwise. Um, so like, do you think that definition like runs against that, um, that, that you're bringing forward? Like, how do you think it kind of lines up when like the general understanding of like what, what people are thinking of when they think of free will? That's a great question. And some people even still use the term free will to pick out exactly what you're identifying, the ability to do something other than what you actually do. So if I'm like coerced into doing something or I'm otherwise compelled to do it, seems like I didn't have free will because I couldn't have done otherwise. And there are people who think that idea of free will and the moral responsibility idea that I was identifying, that those go hand in hand. So if you think that in order to be morally responsible for what we do, you have to have had the ability to do otherwise, then you think those things go together. Um, this is the principle that sort of codifies that idea is sometimes called the principle of alternative possibilities or PAP for short. It's the idea that to be morally responsible, we have to have, we have, to have had alternatives. So I think mm -hmm. it's natural to think, I mean, a lot of people think PAP is a very intuitive principle. A lot of people accept it. Um, it turns out I think it's false, but it's, it's very intuitively compelling. And if it's true, then there is a tight connection between what I was calling free will, the, the connection between control and responsibility on the one hand, and then uh, being able to do otherwise on the other. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Super great. So thanks Taylor. Let's talk about like compatibilism. Um, this is why I was super pumped to have you on. It's like originally a long, long time ago, like two years ago, I thought compatibilism just made like no sense at all. I'm like, well, it's like there's free will where like um, you have the ability to do otherwise and there's determinism where you don't and compatibilists are just right. like, trying to make something out of nothing and, and it makes no sense. <laughs> um, lately I've been like, and I told you before, I'm like, I lean towards like a more like a free will position, but like I see compatibilism definitely as something plausible. Um, so maybe you can just like make sense of it. So if we're talking about like compatibilism, like how does, what does it mean for free will to be compatible with like a no free will position? Yeah, well, I guess I wouldn't want to put it in quite those terms where you where the compatibilist is committed to free will and no free will. I, mm -hmm. I don't want to affirm yeah. a contradiction or anything like that. But I do want to think I do want to say we could have moral responsibility. And so the free will you know, the control required for that, even if um, even if we're causally determined. So the way I see it, it's like um, it seems like we're morally responsible for what we do. We often mm -hmm. hold each other accountable and we praise and blame each other. We even do this to ourselves. We sometimes um, feel a sense of pride or a sense of accomplishment or sometimes guilt uh, because of things that we've done in our past. And I think those only really make sense if we really deserve praise and blame for what we do. So it's sort of like a starting point for me that we are morally responsible. I mean, I guess if the skeptic gave me an argument that I, I couldn't refute, I guess I'd have to give up that initial plausible conception of myself as morally responsible. But that's kind of my starting point is that we're, we are morally responsible. And then the question is, why should we think that we, that that conception of ourselves is wrong if we were to find out determinism is true? And so there it's like, it's sort of like compatibilism is the, is the default position for me. It's like, unless I'm given some reason to think that, that determinism would rule out my moral responsibility, I see no reason not to be a compatibilist. But then what that does is it shifts the debate and shifts the set of questions to, well, what are the, 
what are the arguments for incompatibilism? What are the objections to uh, compatibilism? And it turns out there are kind of two main objections. There are some others, but there are two main objections to compatibilism. One is what's sometimes called the consequence argument. And the rough idea is something like this. If determinism is true, then, and given how I defined it earlier, right, given the uh, earlier state of the world and given the laws of nature, there's only one way that things can develop from there. Uh, if that's what determinism means, well, then, right, what if determinism is true, then what I'm doing now is the inevitable consequence of the distant past and the laws of nature. But of course, it, it's not up to me what was the case that, you know, a billion years ago. And it's also not up to me what the laws of nature are. So it kind of seems like the inevitable consequences of those things are not up to me either, in which case it kind of seems like I don't have control over what I do. Um, that's one line of argument against compatibilism. Another one that's become more popular in the last 20 or 25 years or so is what's sometimes called the manipulation challenge or the manipulation argument against compatibilism. And here the idea is to try to present a case where an agent is manipulated into doing something. And so they seem like they're not really to blame for what they do. And mm -hmm. then to go from there to saying there's no relevant difference between that case and, and, you know, any agent in a, in a deterministic world. So if there's no relevant difference between this manipulated agent that's not responsible and then any ordinary determined agent, then, well, compatibilism must be false. Determined agents must not be responsible. Um, I think the first of these arguments is really good. I'm actually, I'm actually convinced that it's right, that if determinism is true, then because what we do now is the inevitable consequence of the way the world was in the past and the laws of nature. I think what that shows is that if determinism is true, we can't actually do otherwise than what we actually do. So I'm, I'm actually, I'm on board with that argument. Mm -hmm. um, but what I'm going to say is um, that kind of free will that you identified earlier, the ability to do otherwise, the freedom to do other than what you actually do. I, I want to say that's not required for moral responsibility. So I want to say this consequent argument, it challenges one conception of free will, says it's not compatible with determinism. And I want to say that's right. Um, the sort of more traditional, this sort of leeway conception of freedom where you have to have alternative possibilities. I think that turns out not to be compatible with determinism. But the view that I prefer, it's sometimes called a source compatibilist position. Um, you can be the appropriate source of your behavior. You can be morally responsible for what you do. You can have the control required for that, even if you don't have leeway, even if you couldn't have done otherwise. So I'd need to give you a, more of an argument for that, like why mm -hmm. the source model is going to be um, you know, adequate. But that's how I would respond to the consequence argument is I'd say, actually, it's a good argument. And it shows that determinism would rule out the ability to do otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, for the manipulation argument, I can't, I can't accept it. It says its conclusion is that moral responsibility is incompatible with determinism. So there I have to figure out what to say. And it, it turns out because there are lots of different manipulation cases out there, um, yeah, I could give different responses, different manipulation arguments. Mm -hmm. But for some of them, if the manipulated agent doesn't satisfy compatibilist conditions on free action, I can just say, that's different from determinism. There's something weird about that case that doesn't generalize to the ordinary deterministic world. Sometimes someone makes the case in a very sophisticated way. And um, Dirk Paraboom has several of these kinds of manipulation arguments. Um, Al Mealy uh, also has some. Uh, there are others out there. If the case is spelled out exactly right, then I think the compatibilist has to just bite the bullet and say, even though it looks like an agent is manipulated into doing something, and maybe they are, uh, they turn out to have free will and to be morally responsible for what they do. So some people see that as a kind of cost of compatibilism is that for certain manipulation cases, we have to sort of bite the bullet and say, yeah, that agent is free and responsible. Um, but I don't think it's such a bullet to bite. I think it's it's OK to say that. And so that's how I'm going to respond to those kinds of manipulation arguments. Mm. OK, yeah, that's super great. Uh, thanks for that, Taylor. Yeah. So I like how you're, you're kind of looking at it and saying like, hey, determinism, like um, that's that scary idea that like we can't do otherwise. You're saying like, yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, but maybe it's not as scary as it turns out because we can still be held like morally accountable um, mm -hmm. for actions. And I'd love to like flesh that out a little bit yeah. more. Uh, in a few minutes, but I'd be curious, like, 
you talked about your view specific being like source compatibilism. So mm-hmm. like what's before we get into like maybe some reasons against what's motivating now? Like why be a, like a source compatibilist like you are, Taylor? Yeah, the main source of motivation comes from thought experiments made popular by a philosopher named Harry Frankfurt. And so they've come to be known as Frankfurt cases, okay. but they're cases where due to some funky thing going on in the background, like a neuroscientist monitoring an agent's deliberations or something like this. Um, it turns out that an agent uh, makes a decision or performs some action and they seem morally responsible for it. But it turns out that in the case, they lack alternative possibilities. They can't do otherwise. So maybe I'll just give you like a really quick, simple one. Imagine that um, you're in a voting booth and you haven't made up your mind before election day, whether to vote for candidate A or whether to vote for candidate B. So you're thinking about it at the last minute and you know you have to make this decision either to vote for A or to vote for B by a certain time. And you think about it for a while and then you decide for your own reasons, you're going to vote for candidate A and you make that decision. But it turns out that what was going on unbeknownst to you in the background is last night a neuroscientist implanted a chip in your brain uh, that gave this neuroscientist uh, two uh, abilities one to monitor what was occurring to you as you deliberated about who to vote for and second the ability to override your decision making powers to force you to decide one way or the other and the reason this neuroscientist has done this is because the neuroscientist really wants you to vote for candidate a and so um, the, the, what the neuroscientist is doing while you're in the voting booth is monitoring your deliberations. And if, if there's any sign that you're going to vote for candidate B, uh, this neuroscientist is going to press the button and force you to decide to vote for candidate A. But like I said, as it turns out, you deliberate, you decide to vote for candidate A for your own reasons. Um, no button is pushed. Nothing in your brain is like overridden by this device. And so it looks like both of these things are true. One, that you're morally responsible for your decision and for voting for candidate A. Two, looks like you couldn't have done otherwise than decide to vote for candidate A because of the neuroscientists waiting in the wings, right? If you had shown any sign that you might do otherwise, you would have been forced to do the thing you actually did. So um, there's some debate about whether any of these cases are successful. There's a whole literature on Frankfurt style cases nowadays, but um, people like me are motivated by those cases to reject the principle of alternative possibilities that I mentioned earlier, the principle that says a person's morally responsible only if they could have done otherwise. looks like we have a counterexample to that, a case where, you know, you're in the voting booth, you can't do otherwise than decide to vote for candidate A, and yet you're morally responsible for that decision because you did it on your own for your own reasons. You were the appropriate source of that decision. Um, Even though in this sort of counterfactual scenario where you had shown some sign that you might vote for candidate B, you would have been forced by the neuroscientist to decide for candidate A. You wouldn't have been responsible in that case. You wouldn't have been the source of your action. But in the actual sequence that led to you deciding to vote for candidate A, there was no intervention by the neuroscientist. And so it looks like you're the source. So that's like the main kind of thing that's motivating me to reject PAP and to be a, a source compatibilist. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Maybe like, I'm trying to fully understand it. Um, yeah. So we have this, like this voting booth experience, like this thought experience you're talking about yeah. and we have, it's like, should I vote for candidate A or candidate B? Um, but in this like thought experiment, it's not really like a free choice in the sense that they could have done otherwise. Um, but like they make a choice like, Hey, I'm voting for Joe Schmo over Boho Joe or whatever. <laughs> um, and like, you want to say that like, um, they, that choice was determined for like, maybe like some like various reasons, like things cause other things. Um, like they can still be held. Like we can still think they're morally responsible for that choice. Am I tracking right with that? Thought yeah, that's right. I, I guess it was it determined. I mean, it could have been that it was causally undetermined. There's a whole objection to the Frankfurt style case that like a lot hinges on whether we assume determinism in the case. If we mm-hmm. assume determinism, it seems like we're going to beg the question against the incompatibilist who's a leeway theorist. Um, yeah. But if you build in indeterminacy, it looks like how are you going to get rid of all the alternative possibilities? It still seems like you're leaving it up to the agent to do otherwise up till the time of choice. So there's some difficulty in spelling out the case that avoids that kind of dilemma. Um but I think it can be done there. Um, one proposal is to have the, um, 
the choice that Jones, that Jones is the name of the character in Frankfurt's version of this case. Jones is deciding to vote for candidate A, and he um, he indeterministically causes that decision. His uh, deliberations, or maybe his judgment about who's best to vote for, indeterministically causes that decision. But if that cause had not been effective, then some other causal process started by the neuroscientists say would have overridden Jones's decision-making power and would have causally determined him to do it. That might leave indeterminacy in the case because we're, we're just stipulating that the actual decision is um, indeterministically caused uh, by Jones's deliberative processes or something like that. Um, but there's there's the devils are in the de the devils in the details, right? Um, not everyone's mm -hmm. convinced that this kind of case can work out. But anyway, that's just to say, I'm not sure whether I want to say it's determined that he'll make the choice, but he definitely, so it seems to me, can't do otherwise than make this decision. Mm. Okay, that's great. So if you're making like a short case for a compatibilism, Taylor, you're going to talk about um, a few things. Like one, is, like if I'm tracking with you right, um, one is like we have good reasons to think that some sort of like. Um, determinism is true where like things cause other things um, and we can't really do otherwise. So that's like the big thing is we can't do otherwise um, with regards to our action. Um, and then we also have like really good reason to think there's more responsibility. Like we're responsible for what we do. Um, and then you're looking at like those two things and you see things like these Frankfurt cases you talk about. Mm -hmm. um, and like if you bundle them all together, like in a nutshell, like that's kind of like what we're looking at, like why there's good reason to be a compatibilist. I think that's right. I mean, some people, I, I'm not so sure that I'm convinced that determinism is true. In fact, I think determinism probably isn't true. You could you be mean determinism by like, like full scale, full blown yeah. determinism or more like the, like, just like we can't, couldn't do otherwise. Um, well, I mean, even if, even if some of our actions are not determined, it might still be that we can't do otherwise than what we do mm, for yeah. other reasons. So I, I guess what I want to say is <clears throat> whether determinism is true or not, if it were true and if it ruled out our ability to do otherwise, that wouldn't take away our moral responsibility. So I just put it in those kinds of ways. And then, yeah, I think I want to leave room for the possibility that I do want to leave room for the possibility that the world is not deterministic and perhaps even our choices are not determined by antecedent causes. I think there are antecedent causes, but maybe they just work in a probabilistic way. If that's the way the world is, I think we could still have free will and moral responsibility. So I'm not committed to determinism. I just think if, if determinism were true, that wouldn't be a problem for responsibility. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I think that's great, Taylor. What I'd love to do now is kind of explore different couple of different areas of compatibilism with like mm -hmm. different like objections or things. Um, so let's get back to like that moral responsibility question. Um, Cause this is one of those things like for me personally, and I've, nowhere near thought about this as much as like you or other like philosophers have had like have done like i'm not a philosopher i just love doing this and thinking about this yeah, um sure. but like oftentimes like you hear like something said like we're looking at like say like moral responsibility um like you choose like like atrocious people like you know like hitler or pol pot or whatever um mm -hmm. or even people that like um you know just do things like maybe like lie to you or things like that and we want to say like like those things are bad like they're responsible for their actions and a lot of times um, when we're looking at like, why are they more responsible? People say, we're like, they could have done something else. Like, you know, Hitler could have not, could have decided not to like cause the Holocaust or like, mm -hmm. um, someone could have chosen not to lie to you. Like they had that choice. Um, but it seems like then if like this version of like, um, no, I hate saying determinism, but like, that's the simplest way of say, saying it where like, we couldn't do otherwise. What well, seems like then like in your view, like, well, yeah, Hitler couldn't have done otherwise. And that person that lied with you to you couldn't have done otherwise as well. Um, so if that's the case and they really had no choice in the matter, um, like how on earth do we see them as morally responsible? So yeah, yeah I'd be curious if we could unpack Yeah, that. that's a nice way of putting this objection. I guess maybe imagine you wanted Jones to vote for candidate B and okay. you know about the whole neuroscientist waiting in the wings, but who doesn't do anything. And, you know, you go and you talk to Jones uh, over dinner after election day and you're like, come on, man, why'd you vote for candidate A? You should, you obviously you had good reasons to vote for candidate B. Um, if Jones were to tell you, oh yeah, I couldn't have done otherwise. Didn't you hear about the neuroscientist? I was like, I couldn't help it. Uh, <laughs> I think we would be tempted in that case to think he's not really to blame or to praise or anything. He's not really responsible for the choice. But of course, Jones didn't know about the neuroscientist and Jones didn't make the choice that he made because he thought he couldn't avoid it, right? He did it because he thought A was the right candidate. He, he did it for his own reasons. If that's what's going on, I think 
even if you know that he couldn't have done otherwise, you can still blame him if you think he did the wrong thing in voting for candidate A. I think you could still say you shouldn't have done the, that thing for those reasons that you did. And I think, you know, the same might apply even for more heinous actions. If, if it's the case that the person was doing what they wanted to be doing at the time of their action, they're the appropriate source of their behavior. They're, they understood that what they were doing was, say, wrong. Um, I think they can be accountable for that, even if it turns out that, like, digging into the metaphysics, they weren't free to do otherwise than what they did. That might not explain why they did what they did. This is a point so that Frankfurt makes in that paper. I'm kind of parroting and maybe maybe paraphrasing a little bit what what points Frankfurt wants to make. Yeah. So you, you would say then, like, when we're looking at this, um, maybe, like, the... Like, the thing that's going to make someone more responsible isn't like the capacity like um, to do otherwise in a sense, like a real like metaphysical sense, right. but it's more of like possibly like maybe like it's like them realizing like their action is wrong or maybe them like them kind of like realizing they could have done another action or something like that. Yeah, I do think if someone doesn't think they can do otherwise, that might get them off the hook. If like, you know, imagine um, like a case where someone is coerced into handing over their wallet, right? Someone's held at gunpoint and the, the threat is, uh, give me your wallet or else. I mean, in a sense, they could do otherwise, but the cost is like unreasonable, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, their life, like to hang onto the wallet. Um, so I think in that kind of case, if you were to like blame your friend for, get, for losing their wallet when they gave it at gunpoint, um, there'd be something wrong there, right? Like the um, person who gives over their wallet, who's coerced, couldn't have done otherwise. And that's the very reason that they did what they did. Now, that's not how most of our actions are, thankfully, right? Most of our actions, even if it's true that determinism makes it so that we can't do otherwise, we still do what we do a lot of the time for reasons and for, you know, better and worse reasons, but um, not because we think we couldn't have done otherwise. So I think, Maybe there's some kind of like, um, you know, epistemic alternative possibility requirement on free will. We have to think we could do otherwise. And like, if we wanted to do otherwise, maybe we would, that sort of thing. But I don't, I don't hang a lot on that. I think really, if you're just looking at the, the way the agent was motivated and what reasons occurred to them, if you look at that kind of stuff, uh, that's the stuff of which uh, moral responsibility is made. Mm. So it's really those things rather than like, we're looking at like, um, this is super helpful for me. Cause I'm like, a lot of the times, like before this, I'm like thinking like free will, like um, this debate, like it's the capacity to do otherwise, which is right. like the big driving force behind moral responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, and like, you're like, you're pushing back and saying like, Hey, we have these other things to look at. Like mm -hmm. questions about like them, like realizing their actions are wrong or kind of realizing like they could have done otherwise. Right. Um, um, so yeah, that's super helpful. I appreciate okay. that a lot, Taylor. That brings a lot of clarity. So I had this image in my mind, um, and I know it's like a bad characterist, um, like bad character of like compatibilism, but I have this idea of like someone like looking at like an action of saying like, should I like lie or should I not lie? And they're looking at like um, the not lie position and being like, that's good. I want to do that. Not lying is good. But then the invisible hand of compatibilism is like pushing <laughs> them backwards from that position and pushing them towards lying. Um, and obviously in that scenario, like th that's not really compatibilism, but like what, if you, if you're understanding what I'm thinking right here, yeah. like, what's wrong with this picture yeah. um, of compatibilism? That's how some people think of determinism and it's how some other people talk about fatalism, which may be distinct from determinism, but like, I, I guess one reading of the story of Oedipus Rex is Oedipus is fated to kill his father and marry his mother. And no matter what he does, even if he like flees and tries to avoid those actions, he's going to do those actions. Mm -hmm. um, that feels like the invisible hand thing that you're talking about. Yeah. Maybe it's the invisible hand of fate. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't think that determinism uh, commits you to that because when, uh, when you think about like the a state of the world, and then causally deterministic laws of nature implying that some other state will follow. It doesn't follow that like, you know, no matter what intermediate states there are, some event is must happen later on. It might be that the reason some subsequent event is determined to happen is because this particular means is determined to happen. It's not mm -hmm. that like any means whatsoever would have all led to the same action. It's not all lo all roads lead to Rome or anything like that. So yeah, I mean, I guess that's one way of thinking about fatalism. But, um, you know, I think that might be a threat to free will if that's how it works. Like, no matter what you do, the same result is going to 
going to follow. But compatibilists don't need to think of determinism like that. Mm, yeah, that's helpful. So what do you think then, Tyler, about like divine foreknowledge? Um, like, do you think compatibilism can like help us understand the idea of like divine foreknowledge and God knowing like all things that are going to happen in the future? I do. I think um, in the same way that the consequence argument poses a threat to this leeway conception of freedom, the ability to do otherwise, um, I think divine foreknowledge uh, should be thought of as challenging that conception of freedom. And mm -hmm. it's more common for uh, libertarians about free will, incompatibilist believers in free will to think that, uh, um, well, to think of free will in that way as, uh, it, you know, it's so I think it's more um, threatened by the challenge from divine foreknowledge, but maybe it's worth sketching the threat really quickly. If, if God is uh, not only, um, omniscient, that is, knows everything, but also is infallible, can't be wrong, can't have any false beliefs, say, and God's knowledge includes knowledge of what will happen in the future, then it looks like what is going to happen and what God knows is going to happen must happen. And here's why. If suppose, you know, I raise my hand right now, um, God knew a thousand years ago that I was going to do that, right? What would it take for me to have the ability to do otherwise than raise my hand right now? Well, seems like either God would have had to had a false belief a thousand years ago, right? If I didn't raise my hand, right, it seems like God would have had a false belief back then, or maybe a different belief. Maybe he would have believed that I wouldn't raise my hand instead, or maybe, you know, maybe God wouldn't have existed a thousand years ago, but none of those things look like they're within my power. It looks like no matter what I do right now, God's back there in the past a thousand years ago. And, um, you know, if he's got this belief that, I'm going to raise my hand at this time, then there's nothing I can do about that. Now I can't make God's beliefs false. He's infallible. Can't make him have a different belief because well, can't change the past. Can't make it. So God had a different belief than he actually had. Um, so that's the basic challenge to the ability to do otherwise. If um, God has um, exhaustive foreknowledge of the future and is infallible. Um, there are lots of different responses to that argument. Some, appeal to God's being outside of time. Some make a distinction between some parts of the past and other parts of the past. There's lots of different ways to go. Um, I, as a source compatibilist, I sort of get to sidestep that whole question because I can just accept the conclusion, just like I did with the consequence arguments conclusion. If determinism is true, then we don't have the freedom to do otherwise. I say that's fine because we can still be morally responsible even if we lack the freedom to do otherwise. And I can say exactly the same thing about the argument from God's foreknowledge. Yeah, it may be that if God has perfect foreknowledge and is infallible, then I'm not free to do otherwise than what God knows I'm going to do. But that doesn't take away my moral responsibility, even if it takes away my freedom to do otherwise. Yeah, that's super great, Taylor. So like when we're getting to like the mechanisms of like divine foreknowledge, um, like trying to paint a picture of like trying to understand like how God knows like things i've always thought about like like if de determinism or like compatibilism or something like that is true like we're thinking like maybe like god knows like event a is going to cause event b and event b is going to mm -hmm. cause event c um so are you if i understand right would you be rejecting that picture or affirming like i'm, I'm a little confused and i know it's mostly on my end um you know my little brain um but like like what exactly is the mechanism behind like how god would know the future in your view yeah that's a good question and i guess some responses to that argument that i sketched say it really matters how you're thinking of that of the me the mechanism there um like for example on some models of divine foreknowledge god has his foreknowledge because he sort of looks at what's going to happen maybe he peeks ahead into the future and sees what's going to happen and so he knows what's going to happen because he's looked and seen that it is going to happen and if you if god's knowledge depends on the future in that sort of way you might think um well then it's not it's, that knowledge isn't really a threat to freedom. Um, I guess I can, I, I'm not sure what to say about what I think the mechanism is there. I mean, I think we could have free will, even if um, there isn't that kind of dependence of God's knowledge on what's going to happen, even if, um, <clears throat> you know, if God sort of unilaterally decides or decrees what is going to happen, and maybe that would undermine our freedom to do otherwise that's still consistent with our having our being the appropriate sources of our actions uh, to be morally responsible so i guess i'm open to any of the 
uh, well, I guess I should say it doesn't really matter for my view of uh, moral responsibility, which mechanism works. I mean, I tend towards that view where God um, is decreeing what's going to happen. And that's the basis for his knowledge of what's going to happen. But even if you had the more, um, uh, the, the sort of uh, reversed explanation of the knowledge where the knowledge comes because he sees what's going to happen, um, I could still say the same thing, right? Like still no problem for free will. Oh, I think you're still muted. Yeah, I am. So my, my bad. Thanks for letting me know. Oh, um, so what about like heaven and hell? So I'm wondering, like, like I always have like, especially recently had this like intuition that like, or not intuition, but like where I've been thinking is like, if determinism or like something like that is true, or like, especially in like Christian sociological questions where when you're asking mm -hmm. like, um, like is someone saved or not? I've I've been thinking like if you're gonna say that like um someone like had no or I mean not no choice but like like they were say someone that isn't gonna be saved like someone that doesn't like become like a Christian or, or like whatever it needs for salvation we have to think then like under like some sort of view like that where they don't have like they're not gonna have that capability to choose um like to follow like God or whatever that mm -hmm. they're going to have to, we're going to have to say that like God created them that way, knowing that like they would just be determined that they would go towards um, like rejecting like Christ or something like that. So yeah. like, do you think that like a view like that would like, like yours would maybe like imply like universalism or something like that? Or do you think that like, um, like since we have this more responsibility thing, um, you could affirm like a traditional, like, um, like view where there is like a real like separation and like something that's not universalism. Right. Yeah, I think my view is consistent with going either direction. Um, okay. I, I hold to the more traditional theological view, and I don't know that um, I haven't written anything on this, but uh, I, I'm inclined to think the, the same problems are going to arise no matter which view of free will you have, if you want to affirm the more traditional view of eternal separation from God. Because unless you think that like, God doesn't know what's going to happen when he decides to create the world. Maybe you're an open future, open theist. You think it's sort of um, it's not possible for God to know in advance everything that's going to happen. He's taking a certain kind of risk when he creates, unless that's your view and you think God does know from the get go that some people won't be saved. Uh, I think you have a lot of the same objections as you'd have on my view. Um, in any case, you're going to have to think God has a justifying reason for creating people who aren't going to be saved. He's going to have to have some good reason for doing that. And of course, there are, have been, you know, people grappling with that question for millennia now, and especially in, in my own, the Christian tradition. Um, so I don't think I have anything really to add to that. I will say one special objection that's often raised for the compatibilist is, well, you know, are you are these people that God is blaming for doing what they're doing, right? The for sinning, for rebelling against God, are they really to blame for those things? If God has set things up such that they can't avoid doing it, because they can't, they can't do otherwise, given that things mm -hmm. are set up a certain way. And I think that just presupposes that moral responsibility is incompatible with determinism. And it, it turns out, I think, uh, well, those are compatible. Like you can <laughs> be uh, determined to act in a certain way, and you can still be the appropriate source of your behavior, such that you're accountable for it. Um, you might think there are special problems for like whether God has the right kind of moral standing to hold us accountable if he's determined that we uh, sin, say. Um, and that's something I have written a little bit about. Um, there's a new uh, uh, Cambridge anthology on theological determinism that has a set of essays by people who work on free will. And I wrote a chapter for that on um, whether people who are compatibilists about um, causal determinism and moral responsibility should also be compatibilist about theological determinism and moral responsibility. And one of the issues I raised towards the end of that chapter is this issue of God standing to blame people that are determined to sin. And I think, um, I think there are things to say there too, that it actually can be permissible for God to hold accountable people that he's determined uh, to act badly in certain ways. There can be justifying reasons for that. Mm. Okay, yeah, I, I think this is great and it's helpful because you, you're going to say kind of like um, we could hold to a view, like some sort of view like where people couldn't have done otherwise, like even with like soteriological questions. Mm -hmm. um, but you're going to say like, hey, going way back even like to the basics of this, like you can still be morally responsible um, mm -hmm. even under like a view where you couldn't have done otherwise, um, which is going to like be that thing that kind of pushes the allowance for things like um, like hell or annihilationism or like things right. like that. So yeah. yeah, I think that's great, Taylor. Do you have anything else you want to say on like the compatibilism? 
compatibilism front before we like briefly look at like why you would not hold it like these other two views? Um, I guess if people are interested in like pursuing this question um, about soteriology in a little bit more detail, um, I'll point to two resources that I, I've benefited from. One, which goes in the universalist route that you were pointing to earlier, is by um, Lynn Baker called Why Christians Should Be Compatibilists. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's a fantastic paper. It raises some challenges for libertarianism from a Christian perspective. And um, in any case, I don't side with her conclusion, uh, but that's one way to go. Another recent um, book that uh, maybe some people would be interested in is um, it's called Calvinism and the Problem of Evil. And it's a set of essays by different authors on these kinds of questions. Like, how could it be if if God has determined things to happen that... There could be evil, there could be suffering, there could be sin, there could be hell. Um, There's a bunch of different authors there, so I probably don't agree with everything that every one of them says, but it's raising a lot of these questions um, and addressing them using the tools of analytic philosophy. So I'm all for that. Mm. Okay, yeah, that's super great. Um, Thanks for that, Taylor. Mm -hmm. So let's briefly look at then like um, these views here that like you don't hold to. So Mm -hmm. like what's wrong with like a libertarian free will position in your view? Well, I guess, again, I think I sort of take compatibilism as the default. And so to be mm-hmm. like libertarian, libertarianism, I guess, would be my fallback, because um, if it turned out that free will and moral responsibility are incompatible with determinism, I wouldn't say, uh, oh, well, I guess we don't have moral responsibility. <laughs> I still think we're morally responsible. I guess I just have to be an incompatibilist uh, believer mm-hmm. in free will. Um the thing that's distinctive about libertarianism is not only do they say that free will and determinism are incompatible, they are incompatibilist, but since they think that we have free will, they also have to think that uh, a choice or an action is being undetermined somehow makes it free, whereas it wouldn't have been free if it were determined. So they're, they're committed to this idea that like indeterminacy enhances our freedom or enhances our control in some way. Maybe it's because, it gives us the ability to do otherwise, or maybe there's some other reason, but adding indeterminacy somehow going to help. And that's going to get you libertarianism over compatibilism. Um, the main challenge, like historically for libertarianism is what's called the problem of luck or the problem of chance. And the problem mm-hmm. is if you're requiring that an action be undetermined in order for it to be free, it looks like you're requiring that it be a sort of chancy event. Because if some action is undetermined, then holding everything fixed up to the the point just before that action, something else could have happened. It could have been that the world went a different way or like the agent made some other choice. So if like Jones has uh, libertarian free will in the voting booth and he's deciding between A and B, if it really is an undetermined choice, whether he'll go for A or B, then even if he actually decides to vote for candidate A, it was possible right up until the moment just before he made that choice that he could have chosen B instead. But if everything is the same about Jones and about his deliberations in both of those scenarios, the one where he decides A and the one where he decides B, it kind of looks like a coin flip or a matter of luck that he makes one choice rather than the other. Or maybe another way of putting it is it looks like the reason he votes for candidate A, whatever that is, he had that same reason in the world where he decides to vote for candidate B. So it's like, well, what explains why he chooses A rather than B in that world? And what's the reason he chooses B rather than A in the other world? It looks like there's sort of this contrastive fact that's unexplained. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is the the kind of historically most significant and the main challenge for libertarianism. I also think that it uh, doesn't work and um, that compatibilists shouldn't press this challenge for libertarians. And part of the reason for that is I don't think that compatibilists should require determinism. So compatibilists should be okay with saying that some of our choices are undetermined in exactly the way that libertarians think they must be. Now, I don't think that you have to build this requirement of, you know, of indeterminacy into your account of free action because I'm a compatibilist. But I think you should, if you're a compatibilist, you should say, if you satisfy those libertarian conditions, you still have free will. I don't think that would like take away free will. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise I'm going to have to say that like, if we were to find out that, you know, the world has, has some indeterminacy in it, or if there's some indeterminacy in the brain, well, then maybe we don't have free will. And I don't want to say that. 
So instead, I think the main challenge for libertarianism is uh, this related problem. It's a, it's another problem about luck and control, but it's it's often called the problem of enhanced control. And the worry is not that indeterminacy takes away control or freedom, like the problem of luck maintains. Instead, the the worry is that uh, adding indeterminacy doesn't actually enhance the agent's control in any way. Mm, yeah, you take a determined action, and then you like you know add some indeterminacy to the recipe you don't get more control so whereas the problem of luck makes it seem like indeterminacy takes away freedom and control the problem of enhanced control just says it doesn't get you anything new or anything better than you would have in a deterministic context Hmm. and uh i haven't written a whole lot on this yet some of one of my recent publications i kind of sketch uh a way of putting this problem um, at the end of the paper but it's something I want to think more about and, and work more on. Mm, but yeah. I think that's the bigger challenge for libertarianism. Mm, that's great. Thanks, Taylor. So let's go off with this then. Like, what's wrong with like the no free will position? We talked about libertarian free will and that's like the opposite. Like, what's wrong with the no free will position? Yeah, I guess as I see it, the main problem is it gives up moral responsibility. And like mm-hmm. I, the, I mentioned earlier, it's kind of like my starting point that uh, we take ourselves to be morally responsible. We hold each other accountable. Um, you know, some skeptics, including Dirk Paraboom, have written quite a bit on um, how it wouldn't really like disrupt a lot of what makes for a meaningful life if we were to become free will skeptics. But I do think there would be some revisions to how we think of ourselves, how we praise and blame each other. We'd have to not praise and blame each other in a way that presupposes that we deserve praise and blame. Um, and I think those are that's a big cost of becoming a free will skeptic. Um, since we've already been talking about some sort of theological considerations, I'll also mention that it's hard to square free will skepticism with the more traditional views on sin and um, divine judgment and these sorts of things that seem to presuppose that we are accountable for what we do, morally uh, accountable for what we do. Um, so that's like the main thing I think that's that I see as a reason not to be a free will skeptic. Um, the other thing I'll say is, it's hard to see why you should be a skeptic unless you're convinced by all of the anti free will arguments. So like you think incompatibilist arguments work. And so compatibilism's off the table. And then you think there are challenges for libertarianism that knock that off the table. And so all that's left is skepticism. Um, but if that's the way you're motivating free will skepticism, and that's the way that people like Dirk Perriman tend to argue, uh, if you're not convinced by all those arguments, right? If there's some place where you can get off the boat where you can say, Oh wait, I think I have a good response to that argument. So maybe I can actually be a compatibilist or I have a good response to the problem of enhanced control. So I can actually be a libertarian. Then you're not going to be motivated to go all the way to skepticism. And in my own case, I don't think that the manipulation argument for compatibilism is successful. I don't think it shows that you have to be an incompatibilist. And so I'm, I'm just not motivated to go all the way to skepticism. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's super great, Taylor. So I lied. Um, let's close off with this actually. Um, I just came to my mind. I think it's a great, like fittingly to close this true or false question. Um, Taylor Sear chose freely or Taylor Sear. No, here, here's a better one. Taylor Sear could have chosen not to be on this podcast. Um, today, true or false. Uh, True or false questions for a philosopher are really hard because you know, the answer (laughs) is going to be, it depends. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, I guess I want to say it depends, but maybe <laughs> maybe false, right? Like, so given uh, given uh, the state of the world at some earlier time or given God's plans or mm. God's knowledge or something like that, if you hold those things fixed, I want to say it's false that I could have done otherwise. Okay. Um, yeah. Now, often this is a point that um, a philosopher named David Lewis makes in a paper on time travel, which is a fantastic flaw. If anyone wants a fun philosophy paper to read paradoxes of time travel from 1976, it's one of my favorite papers. At one point he makes about claims about what we can do is that it often depends on the context of utterance. So like mm-hmm. sometimes when you ask, can you do that? You're holding fixed certain things. And then other times you'll ask the very same question, but different things are held fixed and the answers will be different. So like he gives the example of like, um, can I speak Finnish? And uh, I can't actually speak Finnish. I, I, I really can only speak English and maybe a tiny bit of Spanish, but uh, I can't speak Finnish for sure. But if you, 
if the context is like, yeah, are you talking about whether I can uh, go to Helsinki and carry on a conversation and finish? The answer will be no, I can't. But if you're like, you know, in an anatomy class and you're comparing my anatomy with an ape's anatomy and you're like, which one can speak Finnish? It might be that the correct answer is that I can speak Finnish because I have the right kind of structure, vocal cords and all that, and maybe the cognitive requirements to learn the language. And so in that sense, I can. But yeah, if you're holding fixed the things that we've been talking about in our conversation today, I think, no, I can't. Uh, I couldn't have avoided coming on. But you can still praise or blame me depending on how you feel about how I've answered your questions because I don't have to have the freedom to do otherwise to be responsible for, <laughs> for saying yes. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, Taylor, this has been super great. Um, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate you. your time and everything like that. Um, how can people like follow with you, connect, follow you, connect with you, things like that. Yeah. So if people are interested in free will, uh, you can hear me ask other philosophers questions about free will on the free will show, um, which is available on wherever people get podcasts. It's also on, on YouTube. We don't have a video component, so it's kind of boring if you watch it on YouTube, but that's it's there. Um, otherwise, I have a website. It's just uh, my name, taylorwseer.com. If you just Google Taylor Sears, C-Y-R, um, philosophy, it'll come up pretty fast. And there I have like, I have links to other interviews that I've done. Um, and also to all my um, publications if people want to read those. Awesome. Well, I'll put a link down below where people can oh, like um, follow and connect with Taylor. And yeah, thanks for coming on today. And thank you everyone uh, for listening. Really appreciate you and support. This is here in Apologetics. If you're new, always encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. Um, and if you value what you do, uh, value what we do, um, you can have a patron at patreon.com slash Apologetics. Uh, we have four new patrons that think since the last episode. So thank you to David Wood, Wofford, Tom Brin Chow, probably said your last name wrong, and Christopher Gore. Really appreciate you and your support. And if you value what you can do, what we do, um, become a patron at patreon.com slash apologetics. You can do it for as little as a dollar a month. But Taylor, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, and it's been great. You gave me a lot to think yeah. about. Thank you, Zach. This was great. Thanks for your questions. Mm -hmm. And thank you everyone for tuning in. Have a good one and God bless. Catch you next time.